So this is the last Sunday in a series that we are calling, that we called The End of Religion. And this has been fun for me because it's, it's, it, it's, I've been able to dump all the things I love into this. I love talking about the Bible. I love talking about history. I love talk, deconstructing the church and hopefully doing a little reconstructing of the church. Like it's been a fun series for me. And if this is your first Sunday, um, you are coming on the tail end of a series um, that we've spent quite a bit of time diving into over the past few weeks. But fear not. Um, you can go to the website, thetablechurch.org, um, and you can catch up on there or on iTunes. Just search, um, the table, just search the Table Church, and you can catch up there. Um, but what you need to know is I love the church. I love the church. Um, I love uh, our local church, the Table Church. I love the, the broader church in D.C. and what it's doing. And in spite of all of its flaws and all of its problems, I love the global church. I, Bill Hybels has this great line that I quote, that, that the, church, the church is the hope of the world, and I believe that. But at the same time, I understand why people push back against Christianity, why so many of you resist becoming a follower of Jesus, and why so many of you resist committing to the church. Because the truth is, if we sat down and had coffee and you told me your story, I would agree with you. I'd want to resist the church as well. The church, throughout its history, has hurt a lot of people and done a lot of bad things, right? And many of the things that you have resisted about the church are the things you should have resisted about the church. And so what we've tried to do in this series is we've taken a look at religion in general, not just Christianity. I think Christianity finds itself or has been corrupted by just broader religious practices that kind of beset all religions throughout all of human history. And these, we, we kind of put it under this category um, called the temple model of religion. And we said in the temple model of religion that there are sacred places, there are holy places where you go and you are reverent and coffee is absolutely not allowed. And in these holy sacred spaces, there are sacred texts or oracles or inscriptions. And then there are sacred men. And for whatever reason, it, in almost every religion, it is almost always men who control these texts and interpret these texts. And they tell us, they tell us that if you do this, you get a good, happy life. And if you do this, there, are, there is punishment. And then we find all of these sincere followers. And what we've said is that Jesus turns this on its head and does something entirely different, entirely new. And, and so we've been talking over the past four weeks about the Jesus model or the Jesus movement. And we said that the Jesus model or the Jesus movement is way less complicated. It's way less complicated. Jesus says this, look, a new covenant I give to you. You no longer need to go through anyone. No one no longer needs to mediate God to you. You can go after God with abandon. And Jesus says, a new command I give you. There are not 630 commandments. There are not 10 commandments. There is one commandment. It's love. Love God, love each other, and love your enemy. And then Jesus gives us a new ethic, a new rule to live by. And then he launches a movement of people who are convinced that the way of Jesus has the power to change the world. But as we said last week, the Jesus model is way less complicated, but it's far more demanding. It's more demanding because in a religious system, in a religious structure, it provides a place for us to hide, to find a loophole, to find the way around the rule or the ritual. And so then we're able to bend religion to meet our own needs and our own desires. And what we end up with is, hypocr is hypocrisy, and we end up with hypocrites. 
And Jesus says, look, no, look, we made this too complicated. This is, this is what I want to leave you with. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. It's a lot harder to, it's a lot harder to dodge this question. It's a lot harder to, to find a way around this question that we explored last week, which was simply this. What does love require of me? In the situation where you want to justify yourself and you want to use some kind of wrangling around the rule or the ritual, find a way around it. Well, you know what I think Jesus really meant. Well, if we understood Paul correctly, I think what he's saying is, and we end up shaping the text to match our own cultural context. But it's really hard to find wiggle room around this question of what does love require of us. Paul says that this single command, this single idea sums up all, everything. And the earliest church, the earliest Jesus followers, for the first 300 years before they had a Bible, they lived this way. They were known for the way that they loved each other, and they were known for the way that they loved people that were outside their community, particularly those who were on the margins. And then we talked about and then we talked about how, how there's something happens in the 4th century, how something happens in the 4th century. And it wasn't, it wasn't intentional. It was just a quirk in history that Christianity, which had been a religion on the margins, ends up becoming the dominant religion of the day. It becomes the dominant religion of the day. And Christianity goes from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. And when this happens, what ends up happening is Christianity looks a lot less like the Jesus movement and a lot more like temple model religions. And we end up with sacred spaces, these gorgeous, beautiful cathedrals that you can still go and visit today. You end up with sacred spaces and sacred texts, and you end up with sacred, holy, powerful men. And you end up with followers who are just trying desperately to keep up with the things that are placed upon them. And then we end up in the Reformation. And this is, the, for most of us, unless you grew up in Catholicism, like most of us, your, your religious tradition, if you grew up in a Christ, Christianity, has been Protestantism, which came out of the Reformation. And what the Reformation does is says, says something has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong with the institution. And so in, we want to move the authority from the institution of the church, and we want to move a, the authority to Scripture. But the problem is, is that when they moved the authority to Scripture, is that people then begin to take the Scripture and begin to act as if all Scripture was equally inspired and equally applicable. And so we begin to take texts that were never meant to be absolutized, and we begin to pull random texts from Scripture and begin to make them say whatever we wanted them to say to match whatever context or cultural context we wanted them to support. Right, you, some of you have been on the receiving end because what we did is we turned the Bible into a bat. We turned the Bible into a bat. And so what we've been doing is trying to figure out what does it look like to, to move forward as people who love Jesus and as a church that loves Jesus, what does it look like for us to embody the gospel but to recover the essence of love? Because what happened is as the temple model crept in to the Jesus movement, Love loses. And so I want us as a church and as people to begin to change that and begin to show a new way of following Jesus, a way that makes the gospel irresistible, and perhaps once again getting back to some of the power of the early Jesus movement.
So what I want to do today is I hope to, to begin to reshape our religious conscience just a little bit. We spent some time deconstructing, and I want to spend a little bit of time today rebuilding. And so I'm going to take five concepts that I think we kind of touched upon over the past week, few weeks and just build upon them a little bit. And maybe, maybe as we look at these, we'll begin to get some of the irresistible nature of early Christianity. So the first thing I want to look at is structure. The church, the church was never meant to be an empire. The church was always meant to be a body. So all throughout the New Testament, you find Paul, the Apostle Paul in particular using the language of, of, of body, right? The, 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 church is, the church is the body of Christ. And, and he says, you are the body of Christ, and each one has a part in it. That means, this goes back to what I was talking about, each of us has been given a particular gift, and when your gift is held to your own and you kind of keep it for yourself, the church never becomes fully what God intended the church to become. In the temple model of religion, our religious experience was about consuming. What am I getting out of it? And so we come, we sit, we listen to podcasts, we read scripture, we do whatever, we, we, we do whatever religious practices we are into. But it was all about us. It was about consuming. But in the Jesus model, it's not about consuming, it's about engaging. It's about using your gifts on behalf of the body of Christ and on behalf of the world. That's why we can't just stay home and consume podcasts and watch preachers on TV, not only because they're weird, but, that's what, but also, because, also because there's a power in coming together as a community and bringing your gifts and your graces to share with others on behalf of a world that is longing for a message and a vision of hope. Right? Um, I had a, oh, I, uh, I heard this pastor say, uh, I thought this was a great analogy. He said, do you know what happens if you, if you remove a body part from the body, if you amputate a part of the body from the body? He's like, it's, it's just, it's, it's gross. And I was like, that's, that's a great analogy. Like, it's, an amputated body part is kind of gross. Like, if you're a hand, right, if you sever your hand and it's just kind of hanging out over here and blood is splattering everywhere and there's tendons coming out, that's gross. Don't be an amputated body part. Or, or, as I was thinking, don't be gross. Engage. Engage. Can you imagine if everyone here, if everyone here decides, you know what, I'm not going to just simply warm a pew, but I am going to use the gifts that I've been given to make a difference in the world. From now on, I'm not going to simply consume. From now on, I'm not going to treat this as just a place where I come to be fed, but I am going to serve. It changed, I think it changed the neighborhoods we live in. And the second idea that Jesus refines for us, and this is something I care a lot about, but it's the idea of authority. So in seminary, in, in kind of the, the time I was coming of age as a young leader, everyone was racing away from being a leader. No one wanted to be called a leader. Right? We sat around and mocked leadership books right? because we wanted everything to be organic. No one wanted to be considered a leader, but we simply wanted to be all you know, followers on a journey or whatever the language was, was kind of popular at the time. But, but the problem is, is that we misunderstood what a leader should be. And, and what Jesus does is he says, from now on, authority is to be exercised for the benefit of the led, not for the leader. 
Right? Our world is hungry and longing for leaders, for people who provide a vision and say, look, this is what it looks like to live differently and to live better. Come and follow me. But not on their own behalf, but on behalf of all people. This is honestly one of the reasons I think that we see someone like Donald Trump beginning to, to take or to, to be as popular as he was for as long as he was because people were desperate for someone to lead. People are looking for leadership. But what Jesus does is Jesus turns the leadership paradigm on its head, not just for church leaders or people in the do-gooder industry, but for all of us. Jesus turns the leadership paradigm on its head. There's this great story that he tells. One day, his disciples are, are bickering among themselves about who will be the greatest in this coming kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. And Jesus overhears them, and he's like, do you not get this? He's like, let me, just, let me just tell you something. He sits them down and he says, look, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know how that works, right? And the disciples are like, yeah, definitely. That's just the way leadership works. That's the way people in power work. That's what they do. What's, what's the point? And Jesus says this. He says, you know how the Gentiles lord their authority over others? Not so with you. Not in my kingdom, not in my movement. When you gather in my name, don't you dare leverage authority. Don't you dare leverage authority for your own benefit. That's not how it works. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave. That is, if you, if, you want to, if you want to be great, if you want to lead, you must learn to serve other people. Because in God's new kingdom that is coming to be among us, the greatest are those who serve others. And then what does Jesus do? One of the most awkward moments in the New Testament, at least if you are weird about feet like I am. He takes off his outer garment, and he kneels down, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And then he says this, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set an example, and you should do as I have done. You should do as I have done. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God, who they believed to be the Son of God, is saying, look, I am serving you. Who do you think you are? That's what Jesus does. That's how Jesus leads. It means, and this means for us, that wherever we are, and I'm, again, I'm not just talking about the church or in the do-gooder industries, but those of you who are in government, who are in business, who are in Capitol Hill, wherever it is that you are, whatever division you might lead or people you might lead, whether it's two or 2,000, your responsibility as a Jesus follower is to figure out how you leverage the authority that you have been entrusted with for the benefit of those you lead and not the other way around. You are to leverage the authority that you have been entrusted with for the benefit of those you lead and not the other way around. This, could, this is transformative in the way that we lead. The other thing that Jesus turns on its head is the idea of marriage. And we don't understand how life-transforming and how transformative the, the Jesus' words around marriage are. 
because we live in the West and we live in the United States and we've never really known this culture. But in the culture that Jesus is talking to, women are property. Women have no voice and a woman's opinion does not count. It doesn't count at home and it doesn't count in court. Women were traded. They were promised away with no say on who they got sent to to be a spouse. And in a world where women were second rate, in a world where, we, where even the theology supported the idea that women were closer to God and women were lesser. This is why, this is why when Paul says there, when one of Paul's most powerful statements um, about there being neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, is because a good, a good religious person at this day would have some sort of prayer that would say, Oh God, I thank you that you have not made me to be a woman. Oh God, I thank you that you have not made me to be a Gentile. Oh God, I thank you that you have not made me to be a slave, right? This is why the, Paul's words are so powerful. And so what Jesus does is, is he turns on its head the idea of marriage, and marriage is characterized by mutual care and submission, no longer male domination. And this is, this is illustrated, the, the power of Jesus' words and the, 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 um, the, the uh, what's the word? How extreme Jesus' words were on marriage is illustrated in the story when, when some people come to ask him his thoughts about marriage. And they say, you know, Moses said this, but Jesus, what do you think about marriage? And you, I'm not going to even read it for you. You need to go read it for yourself. But I will tell you, this is how that ends up. This is how it ends. The disciples, they hear what Jesus has to say about marriage. And it is so groundbreaking. And it so throws them off their game that they turn to one another and they say, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry, right? It, it so destabilizes their understanding of marriage that they're like, dude, that's, that's ridiculous. I, no, I, it's just, it'd be better if I didn't get married. And then what we find is the Apostle Paul comes along a few years later and he picks up on this idea of mutual submission that we find first in Jesus. And he says, he begins to say some things about marriage. And some of you have heard the words of Paul used as a bat against you, particularly around women submitting to your husbands. But the problem is, is that we forget, we pick and choose, and we forget how Paul begins this passage. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he continues on, wives, submit to your husbands. And then he turns to the husbands and says, you are to love your wife as Christ has loved you. What does Christ do? He humbles himself, he lowers himself, he submits himself even unto death. Christian marriage, Christian marriage is a complete departure from the dominant culture. Christian marriage is a submission competition. Christian marriage is a submission competition. Our responsibility is to love our spouse, to love our partner as Christ loved us. And how did Christ love us? He died for us. Here's another word. Spirituality. Now, everyone loves the word spirituality anymore. It's, I mean, even people aren't religious, right? Well, I'm spiritual. I'm just not religious. Um, but, but within the church, within the church, we often tend to use spiritual for people we consider to be holy, reverent individuals, right? It's the person that in your small group or in your community group, they just know everything about Jesus. 
and they know everything about what the scriptures say. And when it comes time to prayer, pray, they have the most eloquent prayers. And you just feel something special when they pray. But Jesus says, Jesus, what Jesus does is spirituality is determined by how, one, by how well one loves and not by how much one knows. Spirituality is determined in the Jesus model by how well one loves and not by how much you know. In fact, when Paul was talking about this, he says the fruit of the Spirit, what the fruit of the Spirit is, and then he begins to list what it looks like to be a person who is spiritual. And we actually spent an entire sermon series on this, but the fruit of the Spirit is, is love, right? Love undergirds people who live in the Spirit. They exhibit love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And after last Sunday, for those of you who weren't here last Sunday, I, I ended this, this sermon by talking about religious spiritual practices, and I talked about worship or the singing of songs, and I talked about devotions, and, and I said that worship is not for you. God doesn't need our worship. And, and you know maybe you crossed a theological line or you pushed the boundary a bit far if on the way home your wife turns to you and is like, are you sure that's theologically correct? Are you, are you sure that's right? Yes, I'm sure it's right. But here's what I was trying to say. <laughs> Here's what I was trying to say. God doesn't need our songs or our spiritual practice. Right? The spiritual, our private spiritual disciplines and the songs we sing and the things we do when we gather are not because God needs them. They are a gift that has been given to us. We don't do them out of obligation, but they are a gift that has been given to us to shape and to form us. They are the thing that the Spirit uses to mold us. They are gifts of grace in our life. This is why John Wesley would talk about spiritual practices as a means of grace, the things which enliven the work of the Spirit in our life. They're not about you. They're not about you, but they're about causing you to love the you beside you. The true test of spirituality is how well you love. Now, this is where my Wesleyan roots are. Um, come begin to shine because for, for John Wesley the goal of salvation the goal of salvation was not justification right so many of us have grown up in traditions where the whole goal is if we can just say the prayer we're good right as long as we can say that prayer and God and us are in a good place then I can go on living my life but for but but for Wesley and and I think for Jesus the goal of salvation is not justification but it's sanctification. It, it's looking like Jesus. Uh, Henry Knight, who's a Wesley scholar, using Wesley's words, says this. He says, Sanctification is where we are inwardly renewed by the power of God, experiencing the love of God shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit, producing love for God and neighbor. That's the goal of salvation. Wesley would say this, the goal of the Christian life, the telos of the Christian life, is perfect love. It's love excluding sin, love filling the heart, taking up the whole capacity of the soul, loving God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. No wrong temper. Contrary, contrary to love, no wrong temper, contrary to love, remains in the soul. And all the thoughts, words, and actions are governed by pure love. That's the goal of salvation. We have been saved from something to something. In the Jesus movement, spirituality is not measured by charisma, but it's measured by the fruits of the Spirit. 
the most spiritual among us is the one who loves best. And the last term we're going to, to look at is holiness. When Jesus comes on the scene, the, 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 the religious leaders of the day would talk about being a holiness people. And for them, what holiness meant was being set apart. But for Jesus, holiness is not about being set apart, but it's about becoming a part. Because up to this point, holy people meant being separated from the dominant broader culture. But in the Jesus movement, holiness is no longer about withdrawing, but it's about engaging. See, we often want to remove ourselves because there's this fear of risking defilement and hanging out with the wrong types of people. Defilement is contagious. This is why, this is why table fellowship plays such a central role in the Gospels. If you've read the stories of Jesus, one of the things you know is that people tend to flip out because Jesus eats and drinks with the wrong type of people. Because in the dominant culture that Jesus is, is, is preaching to, the idea was that, that if you came into contact with someone who was unclean, you risked defilement yourself. And one of the ways you could be unclean, one of the ways you risked defilement was through sharing table fellowship with someone who was seen as being unclean. And so the people that Jesus eats with and the people Jesus drinks with is seen as, or when he eats and drinks with the wrong people, he is seen as risking defilement. But he, and this is, why when he, this is why people are so bothered when he kept, keeps touching unholy things. He touches unholy people. He embraces disease-ridden people. He would stand in line for hours or stand for hours touching people that no one else would touch. And they were saying, how can this be? This guy claims to be holy, but he's touching so many unclean things. But what we see in Jesus is that instead of becoming contaminated by their germs, power went out from Jesus, and those who come into contact with are healed. And the Jesus model, it's not defilement that's contagious, but holiness that's contagious. The people who come into contact with Jesus are transformed and made holy, not the other way around. The Gospel of John says it this way, the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And Jesus ends his time on the earth saying, I want you to go and to make disciples of all people, all ethnic groups, all backgrounds. And his disciples had to have responded, well, Jesus, couldn't we just make our people a better light? Maybe that's it. If we could just live better, then we could be a light to all the other nations. But we don't have to like go hang out with them, do we? Like, Because they don't eat like us. They don't dress like us. They don't talk like us. I'm not even sure they serve the same God as us. Why don't we just stay here in Jerusalem and we'll be a light to the nations? And Jesus would say, no, that day is over. Therefore, go and make disciples of all people, of all nations. And surely I am with you to the end of the age. And there's this powerful moment in Luke's gospel that when Jesus dies, the idea in, in, in Judaism that, that the presence of God was hanging out in the temple. Right? The presence of God was in the temple. And when Jesus dies, Luke's gospel recounts the story that the, the, that the, the curtain which separated the presence of God from the people is ripped from the top to the bottom as evidence that God, the holiness of God, is coming out on people. 
And holiness was no longer about being set apart, but being a part. God had left the temple and was now inhabiting the portable temples. We picked this up in Paul, that we are now the temple of the Lord. And the followers of Jesus, and as followers of Jesus, we are to go and to represent him everywhere we go. And this, this is what I don't want us to miss as we end. That in the Jesus movement, holy people have dirty hands, not clean hands. Holy people have dirty hands. And never confuse giftedness or charisma with holiness. Because the holiest man in history died splattered with his own blood and the saliva of other people. What if every, what if every Christian, what if every Christian decided that they were going to begin to exercise authority like Jesus and begin to say, I'm going to leverage my authority for the sake of the people I lead? And what if husbands and wives begin to decide, begin to get in mutual submitting competitions where they begin to lay down their defenses and lay down their weapons and the accusations and all the things that we do as people in relationships and begin to say, to the best of my ability, by God's grace, I'm going to treat you the way that God would treat you, the way that Christ has shown us. And what if when we ended up in a conflict with another person, and something arises, and there's a disagreement, and there's a problem, whatever it might be. What if, instead of trying to explain ourselves away and explain, justify ourselves and why we're right and they're wrong, what if the question we asked ourselves was simply this? Not what is the right thing to do, not what can I get by with, what's the closest I can get to still, and still be okay, but what if we asked, what does love require of me? See, the thing is, we don't need commentaries and big, thick books and deep devotionals to answer that question. What if we decided every single day simply to pause in those moments when, when we are in a conflict with another person and just say, yeah, yeah, okay, I, I don't know who's right or who's wrong, but what does love require? Christianity was driven by this question, and it swept the world because it was countercultural. What would it look like if the followers of Jesus in the 21st century became defined by this question? What does love require? And so I, I want to end today by kind of announcing how we as a church are going to try to model this, to try a little bit to put our money where our mouth is. So this next week, um, we are going to go in a retreat, and next Sunday, church will happen as normal. So we'll be here at 1030 and downtown at 5 p.m., but the following week, the 23rd of October, um, we are going to not have our worship service as usual um, because we thought what a better way to kind of end this series um, about what does love require of us than to serve our neighborhood. Um, and so um, we are going to uh, not have a 10.30 or a 5 p.m. service on the 23rd of October. 
and we are going to serve our city um, in community groups. Now, because one of the things, one of the, the, our beliefs here is that our community groups are a family on mission. And so we've asked the community groups to lead um, the charge and um, creating work projects. But I know all of you are not in a community group. Um, and so we will have information about the different projects that will be happening on the 23rd. Um, in fact, I think if you show up here, I think at 1030 or around that time on Sunday, you can then begin to go out and they're going to do lunch together and some great things like that. There'll be more details. But we want to really figure out as a, as a church, what does it look like to ask this question? What does love require of us? And just in a small way to model that to the community in which Jesus has placed us. Um, so on October 23rd, I hope you won't miss that. But also, in your own life, I hope that this question haunts you. I'd love for you to go home and maybe put it up on your, um, put it up on your mirror or tape it to your, to your, lap, your computer or your laptop at work. We actually, are on Instagram today, we have a really nice little image that simply says, what does love require? I hope that question just haunts you as you go throughout the next week and the next month. What does love require? And perhaps God would begin to use us in our church to begin to take us back to that simple message that Jesus left us with so many years ago. Let's pray. God, we confess that we are people who have not loved well. Even this week, I find myself responding by justifying myself and not by loving others. Um, I pray that you would just help us to be a people and to be a church that is defined by this question. What does love require? Amen.